that I really had a great desire to spend some time in them, to investigate the truths about God, to be exposed to who He is and what He's done, to be drawn to His presence, His goodness, His faithfulness in our lives. So the Psalms comprise 150 books. It is commonly called the Psalter. And the Holy Spirit has given this to us as a book of prayer and as a book of praise. It's a cross-section of God's revelation to his people and to the nation of Israel as they responded to their God in faith. These are songs of praise to God. They are prayers of the people to God. They are laments against the wicked who oppose God and by virtue of that opposition also oppose them. In these psalms, we see the glory and the majesty of God. We see the raw emotion of people who are in great need, who are up against overwhelming circumstances that are very unwelcomed. And these experiences are contrasted against the person of God, the provision of God, and the people's faith in this same God. So for centuries, God's people have turned to the Psalms to find comfort and strength and to see an obvious reminder of the greatness of Yahweh. While David is credited with authoring many of the Psalms, Other authors are also mentioned, and it's somewhat surprising of how many other psalms were written by people other than David himself. Twelve of these psalms were written by the sons of Korah, who were descendants of Koath, the son of Levi, who served in the temple as musicians. Another twelve were written by Asaph, who was one of David's choir masters and a descendant of Gershon, the son of Levi. And then there are a collection of around six or eight that were written by Solomon, Heman, the Ezraite, Ethan, the Ezraite, and by Moses. Some of these psalms have no mention of an author. Some of these psalms are directed to the choir master, indicating that these were songs of praise that the people would sing. Now, within the Psalter as a whole, it has been divided up into five different sections, which are commonly called the book within the Psalter. And each of these divisions of these books ends with a doxology that makes it clear that there is a transition in the theme within the book. The first book comprises Psalm 1 through 41, and it is commonly attributed to the life of David. Psalm, excuse me, book 2 is Psalm 42 through 72. It also concerns itself primarily with the life of David. But those books, excuse me, those psalms are not in any kind of a chronological order. So we'll see things that move back and forth between different periods of history. The third book, which is Psalm 73 to 89, is the response of the people after the fall of Jerusalem when their dreams of the coming of David a second time were completely shattered. As you know, they were inhabited and conquered and they were taken to other countries And so the Psalms within the third book often reflect that despair and that lament against the wicked and the recreation of the nation that God had established. Book four is Psalm 90 through 106, and these are the laments of Israel against their captors, against the displacement that they are now experiencing. And then the final book is Psalm 107 through Psalm 150, and it's the hope of a future salvation, the restoration of Israel through the second David that we would understand as the coming of Messiah. 
Now, as we look at Psalm 1 today, the very first psalm, it is in the collection of the Psalter. It appropriately introduces the book of Psalms with its pronouncement of blessing on all who respond in faithfulness to the God of the covenant, which is referenced in this book as the law, excuse me, in this psalm as the law of the Lord. The covenant or the law of the Lord forms the background for distinguishing the righteous from the wicked, and it also provides the basis for the blessing upon the righteous as well as the judgment of the wicked. So the placement of this psalm is by no coincidence. It's at the beginning, and it signifies the greatness of God, the importance of the book of Psalms as a whole. It invites us and God's people to live godly lives. The first psalm sets the tone for the entire Psalter because its concern is for God, for godly living, and for the hope of the glory, excuse me, of the hope of the godly and the realization of the promises that would be fulfilled in the covenant. This first psalm makes clear that this collection is to be read and studied rather than to be performed as a musical piece. It stresses the importance of the way people approach the law of the Lord, it is a matter of life and death. So the psalm provides the assurance that the righteous will be rewarded and that in the end God knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked will perish. Lots that you can do as an introduction into the psalms. There are books written on an introduction into the Psalms. So that is the Reader's Digest version of this introduction. So let's look together now at Psalm 1 and these six simple, clear, and direct verses from the Lord. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the shaft, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we're going to look at this in two major sections and look at each of these sections individually. And there's a little bit of a reverse order as we go through the simplicity and the directness of this psalm. Number one, we look at the righteous man. It begins with this, with this very simple phrase, how blessed is the man. That word blessed means to be overwhelmingly happy. Now make no mistake about it, it's not happiness in the sense of the way the world would experience happiness. The world experiences happiness based simply and solely on the circumstances of their life. Although there is a different word in the Hebrew for joy, this overwhelming happiness communicates more along the lines of the deep-seated joy that comes to those whose life is built upon something significant 
as opposed to something that is very circumspect as in our daily circumstances. So this happiness isn't over what we enjoy in this physical world, but this happiness is the result of to whom we relate and to whom we belong as the children and as the people of God. So this righteous man, this man who is overwhelmingly happy with his life, this happiness is brought about, brought about by, number one, what he does not do. The blessed man, the righteous man, is blessed and happy because of what he does not do. Verse 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So what we see here is an intentional disassociation with the ungodliness that exists in our world. As you read this verse, it would seem to indicate that there is a digression of sinfulness that is to take place by the walking and the standing and the sitting. And it's not uncommon for it to be understood that way. But these three negative activities reflect the completeness of how sin dominates the life of the godly. Now, it isn't incorrect to see a digression or to see an increase in wickedness, but I really don't believe that that is the intent of this verse. This, this, verse, this verse's intent is to show the completeness of sin and how it dominates the life of the ungodly. We see a similar phrasing in Deuteronomy chapter 6, a very short portion of what is considered the Shema. And here are the words that we read here. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So there isn't to be, this isn't understood to be three different seriousness in the, in the context of our teaching. You teach one way when you're walking, and another when you're standing, and another when you're lying down. What this verse is talking about is the completeness of the way God's people are to give themselves to the word of the Lord. I think it's very consistent with what we see here in Psalm 1, verse 1, is we're talking about the completeness of sin. Now, these three negative activities that we see in this psalm are more obvious to us in their outward hostility to the ways of God, but again, they reflect the total rejection of God and the completeness of the way sin dominates the life of the ungodly. So what he doesn't do, what the righteous man doesn't do, three things we'll see here. Letter A, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That word walk here means a manner of life. Very consistent with the way we understand walk in the New Testament. When we talk about this walking, it's not talking about a casual exposure to the way of sin. It's talking about how we embrace how this way, this counsel of the wicked becomes a part of our life. It is a manner of our life. It is a regular activity within our life. The counsel of the wicked isn't to be understood as the advice that would be given to us by the wicked. It's simply the planned direction of the wicked. The wicked give no regard as to how they're going to live their life in the context of what God wants, with what God thinks, or with what God desires. They simply determine how they're going to live their life, and they set course on that direction, and there's basically not much that's going to interfere 
with the way they are going to live their life. So the righteous man does not follow the path of the ungodly. Their intentional direction is to follow after sin and to walk away from the things of God. So the righteous man is not going to follow in the counsel of the wicked. We see this expressed in Psalm 5, verse 9. There is nothing reliable in what they say, the wicked. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. So to walk in the counsel of the wicked is a life totally and completely dominated by the way of sin. The righteous man does not follow the counsel of the wicked. Letter B, he does not stand in the path of sinners. To stand means to arise or to take a stand. The idea here is that when you are confronted with your sin, you don't defiantly take a position to continue in that sin. You don't rise up against those who would confront you with sin. You simply are in the path of sin. The path of sinners is the way of sin, very similar to the counsel of the wicked. Again, this is a determined direction of our life. It is to stand for sin, and it is to stand against righteousness. It is a rejection of absolute truth. It's a rejection of biblical morality. It's a rejection of a life that is directed by an external source. It is the epitome of self-rule, and an immersion into sin. You hear it said all the time, I'm going to live my life my way. You don't have any right to tell me what I should do. You don't have any right to impose your truth on me. I want to live my life for myself, to myself, by myself. You keep away from me. If we're not careful, even as the people of God, there are ways that we will give God a stiff arm and say, you know, God, I'm not so sure that I want to give that up. I'm not so sure that I'm not going to take a stand for my sin. We need to be very careful that that isn't the posture that we have in our walk with the Lord. And this is, again, why the psalm will conflict us with our need to give ourselves to the purposes of God. Let us see. The righteous man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. That word to sit here means to dwell. It means this is my resting place. This is where I'm going to reside. This is who I am. I am going to sit in the seat of scoffers. The seat of scoffers would include the assembly of the ungodly. The scoffer or the mocker are the people who actively and outwardly make fun of righteousness. They stir up dissension in regard to morality, and they are in the process of redefining right and wrong. They may not even do this intentionally, but because they are so immersed in their life of sin, it's just what comes natural. Now, there is always a specific agenda to skew the culture away from absolute truth, away from biblical morality. But there are many, many people who are just caught up in it because their life is dominated by the path of sin. And so what we see in our culture and in our world today is one that continually shifts away from biblical morality into all kinds of unspeakable sin. The righteous man does not allow his life to be contaminated with the sin that surrounds, the culture that desires to corrupt, or the enemy who seeks to deceive us 
into living this life of sin, into finding a way to make a lot of gray area in our life, and to give our lives over to ourselves. So each of these three negative examples define a life that is completely dominated by sin, one that has no regard for God, one that has no regard for the things of God. So where do we find such people? Where do you see, where do you experience the seat of the scoffer? Where do you see the path of the sinner? Where do you hear the counsel of the wicked? Well, it's all around us. It's everywhere we go. We are so overwhelmed with the presence of sin, and when we are not doing what we are supposed to do as God's people, we may lack the discernment to be able to say, now I know better than that. God said... But because we aren't trained in the truth, we hear things and we say, well, you know, that doesn't sound like it's necessarily wrong. It's got some truth in it. But we lack the ability to distinguish between the black and white that exists within the law of God that defines how we are to live our lives, that keep us from being contaminated by these lives that are dominated By the power of sin. Now, you and I have been set free from the power of sin, although we still live in the presence of sin. And because we have been set free, and because we have the Holy Spirit of God within us, we ought to have the ability to discern and to say no against the contamination that exists within our world. People who are outside of a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ are considered to be the wicked people. Regardless how, of how externally wicked they appear to be to us, they are still considered to be wicked. Now, make no mistake about it. The gates of hell are going to be filled with people who possess some level of morality. It's going to be overwhelmed by people who possess some sense of goodness in their life. But we know that only those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, only they are going to be the ones that enter into the kingdom and everybody else is going to be considered wicked or ungodly. Christianity is very exclusive. You either have Jesus and are in or you don't have Jesus and you're out. It's as simple as that. So those who do not belong to the family of God, those who have not given their lives to Christ, are by biblical truth considered to be the wicked or the ungodliness, or or the ungodly. So this happiness is brought about by what the righteous man does. But this happiness is also brought about, excuse me, what he doesn't do, but this happiness is also brought about by, number two, what the righteous man does. As opposed to, being in the counsel of the wicked or the path of the sinner or the seat of the scoffer, there is an absolute and total contrast between the life of the wicked and the life of the righteous. Verse 2 says this. What does the righteous man do? Verse 2 says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. As the righteous intentionally are to disassociate themselves with the ways of the ungodly, the righteous man also joyfully and intentionally associates himself with God and with the law of God. So what does the righteous man do? Letter A, he delights in the law of the Lord. That word delight means exactly what you would expect it to mean. It is to take pleasure in. 
It is to take pleasure in the law of the Lord. You know, in this physical world, there are many, many things that we can take great pleasure in. And they may not necessarily seem to be wrong to us, but you understand the kind of attention and affection we have for those things that bring us some sort of pleasure. They are a delight to us. It might be a new house, a new car, it might be a great vacation, it might be as simple as a great meal. We delight, we take pleasure in these things. And so the righteous man is to take pleasure, he is to delight himself in the law of the Lord. Verse 2 says, and in his law he meditates day and night. So not only do we delight in the law of the Lord, but we meditate upon the law of the Lord. You know, it occurs to me that oftentimes we will come across passages in the scripture where there is a rebuking or there is some kind of correction and we will say to ourselves, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I necessarily like that. I'm not so sure that I want to embrace that into my life. See, that's not the way of the righteous man. The righteous man delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates on the law of the Lord. That word meditate means to reflect or to ponder. You know, we are spoiled because we have the ability to carry with us anywhere and everywhere we go the Word of God. We can pick it up in a little pocket testament. We can download it onto our phone or our tablet. We can listen to it by radio or by cassette tape. We have every opportunity to be exposed to the law of the Lord so that we can meditate on it. But if you go back and think about the biblical culture, few people had the written word. What they had was the oral tradition that was given to them by the teachers and by the priests and by those that were trained in the word of God. And so because the availability of God's written word wasn't available to the masses, they would often have to remember what they heard, what they were taught, and they would then ponder on, they would meditate, they would give great thought to these things that they had heard. You know, good Jewish children had to memorize huge sections of the Old Testament because they didn't have a scroll or a book or a tablet that they gave them access to the Word of God. So these people here would meditate. They would give great consideration to the truths of God's Word. The law of the Lord here is very simply His Word. We should not understand this to mean the five books of the Torah. We should understand this to mean from beginning to end, the Word of God in its totality. We are to delight ourselves in, we are to meditate upon the entire law of the Lord. That's a bit overwhelming, isn't it? I remember when I became a Christian. I was saved out of a complete pagan background. I couldn't have quoted John 3.16 to you. And when I got saved and I got my very first Bible and I thought... I gotta read this and I have to understand this and I have to be able to tell others about it. I don't know about that guy. That's a tall order for this young boy. But nonetheless, we are to delight ourselves and we are to meditate upon the law of the Lord. The righteous man takes great pleasure in spending significant time in God's Word, allowing it to teach and correct and rebuke and train so that we can be who and what God has intended for us to be. A couple of verses out of Psalm 119. 
The psalmist writes, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Does that sound like you and I? Is that the conviction of our heart? Is that the intentionality of our path? I'm struck by verse 35 here. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. You know what the psalmist is, is doing here? The psalmist is inviting God to do whatever you need to do in my life so that I will delight in your law. Whatever circumstance, whatever hardship, whatever difficulty, you have to orchestrate so that I will delight in your law. Bring it on, God, because this is what I want my life to be about. There are not many who will pray a prayer like that. The happiness... The joy of the righteous man, what he experiences in his life, is related to what he does not do and what he does. But the true happiness that we see in the life of the righteous man is here in number three, and what he becomes. What does the righteous man become because he delights himself in the law of the Lord, because he meditates Upon God's word. Verse 3 tells us here, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not weather, and then whatever he does, he prospers. So what we see here, and the source of happiness, and the source of this deep-seated joy, and the life of a righteous man, are these expressions of spiritual blessing. Independent of the kind of house we live in, or the kind of money in the bank account, or the kind of health that we enjoy, the happiness of the righteous man is the result of the spiritual blessing that comes to their life, regardless of whatever circumstance they find themselves in. So we see what he becomes. Letter A, he becomes firmly planted. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. The tree here represents strength and stability. Streams of water reflect a source of life for the tree. In this arid region, a tree that was separated by miles from a water source would often struggle to survive and would often die because of the lack of nourishment that was brought to it by the water. So because this tree has been intentionally planted by these canals of water, it has great strength, it has great stability because its roots are going to withstand the storms that are going to come its way. The source of life for the righteous man is in his relationship with God. It is that deep and abiding and intimate communion with God and with his word. So the man becomes stable in his walk with the Lord because he has given himself over to the word of God. Letter B, the righteous man becomes spiritually productive. It tells us here, this tree which yields its fruit in its season. That fruit here is health. It is productivity. A healthy tree is going to bear all kinds of fruit. If you own an orchard, and if you've got a sick tree or a weak tree, and it comes to harvest time, guess what? There's not going to be anything there. 
It has been ravaged by drought. It's been ravaged by insects. It's been ravaged by some kind of a disease, and it's not going to bear its fruit. But the righteous man is always going to bear spiritual fruit because he is planted by the source of life. Letter C. This righteous man becomes spiritually strong. Verse 3 says, and its leaf does not wither. It is the idea of a leaf that is green, of a leaf that is healthy all year round, in season and out of season. This leaf that does not wither means it does not fade away. You know, every season here in Pennsylvania, there comes a period where the trees drop their leaves and they go dormant. And we anxiously await for the new growth and the new birth that comes with spring. Well, you see, this kind of tree that is planted by the source of life, that tree has leaves that never wither. Those leaves will never fade away. It's the idea of endurance. It's the idea of the ability to withstand great difficulty without becoming overwhelmed without becoming disillusioned or without becoming bitter against God or the circumstances that God has allowed to come into your life. What do we do when we face great hardship? What are the emotions that we go through? Where do we live emotionally when we're in the midst of great difficulty and in great hardship? Now, I want to tell you, being a strong Christian does not mean that you will not have thoughts of despair. It doesn't mean that you won't have thoughts of, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? We see that expressed all through the Psalms. But we don't live in that mentality. We don't live as if we are people without any hope. We have a leaf that does not wither, it does not fade away, because God is the source of our life. And because that is true for us, we are spiritually strong, we have great stability, we will continue to bear spiritual fruit, and our leaves will not Disappear. Lastly, letter D, the righteous man experiences spiritual prosperity. And in whatever he does, he prospers. It means to be spiritually successful. Successful. You know, it's unfortunate that many in the Christian culture will take verses like this and say, you see, God has promised to make you wealthy. If you will just do, and if you will just avoid, then God is obligated to make you wealthy. That's not at all what this verse and the verses like this are all about. These verses are about our ability to be spiritually successful because we derive our source of life from God Himself. There are many of the ungodly in our world that enjoy the great wealth that this physical world offers. But there are many, many righteous people who can't rub two nickels together because of their circumstance. It does not mean that they are not righteous and that God has not blessed them. It's talking about a spiritually successful person who experiences this great intimacy with God regardless of the circumstances they find themselves in. The righteous man is successful in the things of God and fulfilling the purposes of God because... They are connected to the source of life, independent of any physical wealth or any other kind of physical blessing. The righteous man is spiritually successful in whatever he does because he meditates and he delights in the law of the Lord. That's the righteous man that we see here in verses 1 through 3. And now we look at our second section here. We look at the wicked man. 
Verse 4 reads, The wicked are not so. As the psalmist has described, the life of the righteous man, the one who enjoys great spiritual strength and great spiritual productivity and great spiritual endurance, literally it says, not so the wicked. This does not exist in a reality of truth for the wicked. They do not enjoy these things. The wicked man, the wicked here very simply means ungodly. It is those who are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we tend to think of wicked as those who commit violent crimes against other people, of those who, who, those who take advantage of the helpless, of those who have no defense of their, of their lives, and yet others invade it in such a way that they abuse and mistreat and rob and steal and take every manner of good thing out of their life. That is not what the wicked means in this context. The wicked are simply those who are without God. They have rejected him and his truth, and they are unwilling to submit their lives to his, Lord, to his lordship. Now, the ungodly are not overwhelmingly happy. The ungodly do not possess a deep-seated joy in their lives. The ungodly experience happiness only as their circumstances will allow. The ungodly don't delight themselves in the word of God. They are not like a tree planted by the streams of water, and they will never be spiritually fruitful. The lifestyle of the ungodly is not something to admire, but the one that the righteous should wholeheartedly reject. You know, we often look at the rich and the famous, and we say, boy, I wish I could be like them. I wish I had the ability to hit a ball that far, or I had the ability to run that fast, or to play an instrument like that. We often admire and envy those who have great physical or worldly success because we see so much inferiority in ourselves, and we deny the fact that we are loved by God, that we are eternally going to be in God's presence, and we get caught up in the trappings of this world. Do you remember the show years and years ago, The Lifestyle of the Rich and Famous? And they did these little exposés on these people that had unheard of wealth. They would spend thousands and thousands of dollars on things that you and I could never even think about buying. And it celebrates all that the world has to offer. But I want to tell you, that stuff is not going to last. So the lifestyle of the ungodly is not something that we are to admire. We are to reject it wholeheartedly. So when we look at the life of the wicked... Here's what we see. We see what he has become. What has the ungodly or the wicked man become in his life? Verse 4 says, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. That chaff means worthless. Now, they're still people. They're still creating the image of God. But the lives they live, the lifestyle that they embrace, the outcome of their life is identified as being worthless. Now, the chaff comes from the wheat kernel. And it was the husk. It was the part of the wheat kernel that was discarded or it was thrown away. This took place on a threshing floor. And if you've ever seen what took place on a threshing floor, you know that there was some roughing up of the kernels of wheat. They would put it on this big cloth and they would take this instrument, whether it be a broom or something else, and they would beat that wheat and they would just smash it over and over and over to separate the kernel of wheat from the worthless chaff. And then they would take that piece of cloth and they would fling it up into the air and it would allow the wind to discard the chaff away from 
the wheat. To drive away means to remove or to discard. And we think about the lifestyle of the ungodly. And as we think about the outcome of the life of the ungodly, it's very clear here that this is a message about the day of judgment. Regardless of what the ungodly enjoy in this life, they are going to stand face to face with the living God. They are going to give an account of their life and they are going to give an answer for the kind of life that they have lived. And what the psalmist is telling us here is that these ungodly people have a lifestyle that is worthless and in the end it is going to be discarded and driven away from the person of God. We see what he becomes worthless. He becomes the chaff that gets driven away. Number two, we see what he cannot do. The ungodly cannot do. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. So the wicked are not going to be able to stand in the judgment. That word stand again means to arise or to take a stand. That day of judgment is very simply the day of reckoning. And when the Lord comes or when the ungodly stand in the presence of the Lord, they will not be able to take a stand. They will not be able to rise up in the presence of the Lord. Psalm 9, 7 and 8 says this, But the Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment, and He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity, and the the ungodly will not be able to stand in His presence. Letter B, they will not be able to stand in the assembly of the righteous. Sinners here are those that have rejected God. You know, when you and I those that have been born again, stand in the presence of God, we will be joined by the assembly of every believer from every era and every age to the praise and the glory of the God who has loved us and has saved us. That is not so for the ungodly. What an incredible privilege it is for us to know that when we have to give an account of our life, we can very simply plead the blood of Jesus Christ, which has washed us clean and made us right and makes us acceptable in the presence of God. Sinners here is a different word than the word used for wicked, but it still communicates the same truth that there is no distinction between what we would consider wicked and what the Bible considers sinful. If you are sinful, then you are wicked. There is no difference there in the context of our relationship with God. The assembly of righteous, of the righteous, is God's people, God's spiritual family, the body of Christ, those who identify with the cross and claim it as their only hope of ever being able to stand in the presence of the Lord Almighty. The psalm concludes with this verse, verse 6, very clearly, very simply. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Not only will their lifestyle one day perish, not only will it one day go away where we are removed from the presence of sin, those who have lived an unrighteous and ungodly life will also perish with that lifestyle. We know what it means to perish. It doesn't mean extinction or annihilation. It means forever separated from the presence of God, that place where there is great weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the worm never dies. 
And I bet each and every one of us would consider ourselves to be the righteous man by virtue of our salvation. But let me ask you this. Are we living the life of the righteous man by devoting ourselves to the law of the Lord, by meditating upon it day and night, by finding great strength from God himself to be able to live this life in such a way that we reflect the greatness of the God who has loved us and saved us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want you to think about that for just a moment. The great treasure that is the Word of God, the great riches that comes from the Word of God, what role does that have in your life right now today? God, would you show us if we are truly delighting in your Word? Would you expose to us how little we tend to meditate on these great truths. Father, as you bring these things to our heart, to our mind, would you remind us that this is not the way of the righteous. We are to delight in you and in your word. We are to give great thought and care to who you are and what you've done. And we are to set our lives on a path that fulfills your desires for us. Father, we all know intellectually how much we need you. We would all agree together that we need to give more of ourselves to you. Would you, by your work of grace, compel us to give our very best to you, knowing that you are a loving and a gracious and a faithful God? Thank you, Father, that there's always forgiveness when we fail. Thank you that your grace is inexhaustible. And thank you that by your grace we can come to you and cast all of our cares upon you, all of our flaws, all of our failures, all of our needs, all of our desires. We thank you that you welcome us. We thank you that you embrace us. We thank you that you accept us. God, would your kindness lead us to repentance as we consider who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, would you stand as we sing a song of thanks to the Lord for what he has